Well, uh, good morning. Welcome, <coughs> welcome to City Reform Church on Marathon Sunday. <coughs> the marathon does a really good job of running a, a loop around our church, which makes entry a bit difficult. But you're here. You've endured. You found your way through. We're, we're glad to be with you. It's probably our, our lightest Sunday of the year, increasingly. Uh, and, uh, we're, but we're glad you're here. We do continue to, to meet, to worship, uh, and anticipate that perhaps some people are listening to this uh, uh, on the internet at home, and uh, we, we're glad you're doing that too. Um, we are dismissing children for Children's Church, but I was asked just to remind you because of uh, the uh, measles outbreak, we're asking two things. First of all, any children not vaccinated, uh, we ask that they would be held out uh, of uh, the nursery for their good and for others. And also, uh, we're particularly aware of any sort of uh, symptoms of oncoming illness because sometimes the uh, early onset of measles can look that way. So, uh, but we, uh, we, pray, we pray and expect that uh, this, this too will pass without much incident. Um, we are moving through a book of the Bible, uh, the book of Nehemiah. It's, uh, a peri- it covers a period of time in Israel after God's people began to return from exile. They had been exiled in Babylon, the southern nation of Judah. Uh, they spend roughly 70 years there, and they begin to return in 538 B.C., this book takes place in 445, or at least the beginning, so about 85 years, 90 years after the first wave of exiles returned. Uh, second wave of exiles returned under Ezra. It's a, a book written with some of his first-person uh, 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 memoirs or accounts included. And then this is the, sort of the, the third act of restoration of Jerusalem, uh, beginning in 445. Now, we, uh, we shared a little bit about the background last week, and, and just to review, this is a little section in italics, I'm not going to read it all, but it helps to set the stage for what's happening. Uh, this first part and much of the book of Nehemiah is told from the perspective of Nehemiah in the first person. He, cl- he concluded the section last week by, uh, with a word about himself, he was the cupbearer to the king. Uh, at this point, in the beginning of, in chapter 1 and 2, he's living in the city of Susa, which is the winter capital of the Persian Empire. And uh, he, as a cupbearer to the king, has a power, a, a position of great power and, and influence. Uh, a cupbearer to the king was someone who had the responsibility of making sure the king wasn't poisoned. Uh, but also, he had great access to the king, and some ancient records indicate that the, cu- the cupbearer was a position that had other powers and duties as well. So it's a significant thing that, uh, that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. He is serving the king of the, the greatest empire that Nehemiah knew about. Uh, he didn't know about anything happening in, in China, most likely, but the Persian Empire stretched through uh, what Nehemiah knew of the world, and uh, there was unprecedented power there. And the exiles who had returned from Babylon back to, their, um, back to the land of Judah and to Jerusalem were living under the authority of the Persian king. Well, here in Susa, uh, 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 Nehemiah hears a report from someone he calls a brother, um, and uh, he hears that Jerusalem is not doing well. 
the, the gates, the walls are broken down and the gates have been burned. And this is likely the continuation of the destruction. The city had been destroyed uh, in the Babylonian conquest. It just hadn't, they hadn't been able to rebuild it. This is a cause of great concern for him. Uh, great grief. He, pray, he, he grieves, he prays, he's concerned for his people. We can imagine that uh, Nehemiah, who was himself living in the, the center of power of the Persian Empire, still connected deeply with his people. And he was concerned for their welfare. So he begins to pray. But in the passage we look at this week, we see that Nehemiah moves from prayer to action. He actually speaks to the king. And, uh, excuse me. <coughs> Uh, and it begins to set forth uh, a course of action that will shape the rest of the book. So I'll read this passage, and then we'll, we'll uh, uh, reaffirm together it's God, God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, uh, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of, the hev of, heavens, of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant was, has found favor in your sight, that you, send, uh, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased, displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. We uh, mentioned a little bit of the scene. Nehemiah as a cupbearer of the king is in the presence of the king, and he's looking sad, so the king asks him what's wrong. And it's the opening for Nehemiah to describe his problem. Now, the situation is, uh, that we have in chapter 2 occurs in the month of Nisan, and if you're not up to date on your uh, ancient Persian calendar, uh, the first scene was set in the month of Chislev, which was late fall. Nisan is early spring, so four months have passed since Nehemiah first heard this news. He responded with grief and dedicated prayer, one prayer being written in great detail. And the flow of the text would make us think that he continued in that manner for some period of time, waiting for an opportunity to speak. 
In the Persian Empire, as in the ancient world in general, people didn't just go to the king with a request. You may remember some of the drama that surrounds this in the book of, es of Esther, another uh, Persian king a, a couple decades before this. To go to the king was to take a great risk. Now, uh, Nehemiah had a relationship with him uh, of some kind. He seems to be a trusted advisor, a person that the king values. And yet it wasn't easy to know how he would start the conversation. Uh, you may have remember from the end of last week that Nehemiah closed his prayer by saying, Oh Lord, let me find mercy today before this man. He prayed that four months prior, and we think that for four months he hadn't had the opportunity. And now, uh, the, some commentators think that the, in, that the language of the wine being reformed creates a picture of a, a festival of some kind or a, a party that would be likely happening in, in early spring. But it's an occasion where most people are seeming to be celebrating. He's performing his duties as the cupbearer to the king, and the king notices his sadness. Now, we don't know if uh, Nehemiah intentionally was looking sad to look for an opening, um, I tend to think, just by reading it, that Nehemiah seems to be caught off guard here, that the king had asked him. Uh, so perhaps after four months, the, the moment finally comes, the door opens, the king opens the door, and, and maybe it's because he's at a festival, and, and, and maybe, as some scholars think, there would have been a tradition of granting favors in this sort of a setting. We, we don't know that for sure, and the text doesn't tell us, but the door is open. So... Nehemiah responds. He responds by making it personal at first. Now, he speaks to the king and he says, let the king live forever. That's how he spoke to the king in the Persian empire, really in any ancient, uh, any ancient empire. Uh, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He's, he's recapping what he's been wrestling with for these, uh, for these four months. Uh, the city is in ruins. It's vulnerable. There's no protection around it. It's the city where my, uh, the graves of my fathers are. It's my people who are there. And Nehemiah cares for them. Well, the, the king understands that he's really coming with him, coming to him with a request. You couldn't be super direct in how you were going to address this. So he looks back and he, and he says to him, all right, what is it you're asking for? What's your request? What do you want me to do, Nehemiah? Oh, this is the moment of truth. This is the opportunity Nehemiah has been waiting for for four months. He's been praying and perhaps fasting regularly during that time period. The door is open, the request is made, and Nehemiah is going to make a big ask. Now, we don't know if this conversation happened over a period of time. We don't know fully the significance of the queen sitting beside him. Is this moving to a different scene or from the original one? We don't know that. But Nehemiah does know what he's going to ask. He's been thinking about it for four months. And it's a big ask. He asks to be dismissed from the king's service for a period of time. He's a trusted servant, perhaps even an advisor, and he's asking for a leave of absence. And what's more, he's going to ask not only that he leave, but that he gets timber from the royal, uh, the royal timber supply, that he takes it with him, he gets letters of permission to travel, 
So the other leaders in the region will let him through. And we're going to find by the end of this passage, you see that he even has uh, uh, officers from the army and horsemen equipping him. It's a big ask. And Nehemiah says, right before he asks it, do you notice, do you notice this? It says, then I was very much afraid. It's something that, that really struck me as I read the passage. Nehemiah, the moment he's waiting for has come, the door is open, he has, an, he has a, uh, uh, the company with the king, the, re- the request is invited, and Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. This is sort of biblical honesty that I love to see in the scriptures. Nehemiah is going to be a man who's very bold. We'll see him doing that. He's, he's going to be courageous. He's going to step forward into action. But here in this moment, when, when the door opens and it's the moment where he's going to have to speak and he's going to risk it all with the king, he says, then I was very much afraid. We, we can be a little more sympathetic with Nehemiah's situation if you aren't already. To speak to the king was to speak to the man who stood at the head of the greatest empire Nehemiah had ever heard of. It stretched from, stretched from large parts of India right up to the edge of Greece and Europe. In fact, if it hadn't been for an unlikely uh, upset by the, uh, the upstart Greek army on the plains of Marathon 45 years earlier, Persia would certainly have swept into Europe. Right? So... Uh, even the Persian king was delayed by a marathon in those days. Uh, I was thinking of that for a little bit. Uh, and, and, and the situation is actually a little more fearful than that because the reason that the walls have not been built actually have something to do with Artaxerxes himself. In the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, the people who live around Judah and Jerusalem are very concerned the city's being rebuilt. It's going to shift the balance of power in the region. So they write a letter to the king of Persia, who is the same guy, Artaxerxes, 13 years later, and in response to the letter, he shut down the rebuilding effort. So Nehemiah is going to ask him to go back on his own edict. He's, he's asking him to reverse his course of action. And if, he's, if he doesn't get it here, it could be very difficult to do anything going forward. So the, 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 uh, to use a gambling metaphor, right, the chips are down. Everything is here on the table. As I think about it, again, I think we can relate personally, not that we speak to the uh, regularly to the, you know, the greatest mil- military political powers in the world. But we, too, have difficult speaking situations, don't we? I want to ask you to think just a moment about your life. Where are the times and places you find it difficult to speak to people? Some of you might find it's easy. You just blast forward whatever you're thinking and saying. And, and maybe what you need to take from the lesson of Nehemiah is that he did pray for four months before saying anything. And I find it to be a very generally good rule that if we can have a good ratio of prayer far exceeding our speaking about hard things, we're less likely to say things problematic doesn't always work that way, but it's a, it's a pretty good rule that we, uh, as people who speak in hard situations, are fundamentally people committed to God in prayer and humbly dependent upon Him. 
But my personal experience is that the vast majority of people I talk to, and really just about everyone I know, finds it difficult to talk in some settings. In some places where we're speaking to someone with power or authority or someone who threatens us in some way, speaking can be very hard. Perhaps it's a, a boss, an advisor, political powers over you. Maybe it's a, a close friend or a family member that you really care about or feel vulnerable to. Perhaps it's just people in general that public opinion seems to weigh so heavily on you. Or perhaps when you're in the situation where you might uh, share your faith with someone and you find it very difficult to speak. We were uh, inviting uh, friends and neighbors and people we knew uh, to this picnic we were doing before church a couple of weeks ago, and I had, had met a guy from the neighborhood. I, we, I, he was, uh, worked at a climbing wall, a climbing gym I've been going to, and I decided I'm going to invite him to our picnic. He lives really close by, and, and he's like less than half my age. And when I started to talk to him, I suddenly felt really nervous. I couldn't, I was sort of almost looking at myself from outside thinking, why, why are you feeling nervous here? It was uh, just sort of uh, broaching this topic that had never come up in conversation before. Why do you think about coming to our church? <laughs> I felt like I was talking that way. Isn't it hard to talk in so many of our settings when, when, when it's on the line and we're vulnerable? I think we can learn from Nehemiah, praying and speaking. Three, three things we want to look at in the passage today. We're really going to zoom in on this. Praying and speaking. I find the connection to be so powerful when we look in the passage. The king says, what are you requesting? And Nehemiah says in verse 4, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, the, the secret in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's devotional life, his awareness of the presence of God. I want to do three things with that. First of all, we'll, we'll talk about why prayer is effective. Secondly, uh, we'll, we'll talk... Uh, let me make sure I say my second point correctly here. Uh, secondly, we'll talk about the way, the way we grow in faith, grow even in our prayer life. And third, we'll talk about the access we have through Jesus. On, on the other side of the cross, how do we relate to this Old Testament passage? Uh, so first of all, uh, why is prayer effective? It's a really powerful picture, an intimate picture of Nehemiah praying to his God. I was uh, talking to a friend after church last week, and he was just saying uh, how, how much the book of Nehemiah presents this intimate picture of Nehemiah and God. We saw that last week in the passage. You may remember it, the language that he uses. He uses the language of covenant, of God. He's drawn near to be with us. But Nehemiah can say things like, oh, may your ear draw near. Would your hand come to be cl close to us? Would, would you speak to us? Would you remember us? It's very intimate language. Nehemiah is a, a person who knew his God. And he knew two very important things about God. First of all, he knew that God had ultimate power. He said, uh, it says even in verse 4, I prayed to the God of heaven. And now in the ancient world, uh, people would have believed in many gods. Various gods would be associated with certain regions or realms or activities. 
a God who cared for the land of Egypt or cared for the land of Babylon or a God in charge of death and life and marriage and so on and so forth. But Nehemiah believes he's speaking to the God who's the God of heaven, who's the God over all things, even a God who's bigger than the power of the king of Persia, the greatest power on earth at the time. Nehemiah had the audacity to believe that this God who had covenanted with this small group of displaced people from Judah is the God of heaven. And the God is able to direct even the king for his purpose. It's going to be very important, we notice at the end of the passage, that we are introduced to two characters who are not going to be as friendly. Uh, that's Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. It's our introduction to characters who are going to be with us the rest of the book. They are political leaders in the surrounding region and they are displeased that someone wants to rebuild Jerusalem. It's going to disrupt their balance of power, perhaps undermining them. The rest of the book, Nehemiah is going to stand under powers that are around him and that threaten him, but he will continue to turn to the Lord God of the heavens, the God of heaven, who is powerful over all. So the first thing Nehemiah knew and the reason why prayer works is that God is in heaven and he rules over all things. We read that in our psalm as we called each other to worship. God is bigger than the nations. He's bigger than the Persian Empire. He's bigger than the American government. He's bigger than NATO, the European Union. He is in heaven and he rules over all. So no matter what situation we're in or what difficulty we face, we are assured that God is bigger and able to deal with it. But secondly, Nehemiah knew that God was willing God had covenanted with his people. We saw that language in his prayer last week. He knew that God is willing and able and accessible. It's a powerful image in verse 8 where Nehemiah speaks after he had saw God working and he said, for the good hand of my God was upon me. It's a really powerful picture of the God of heaven caring for him. The good hand of my God was upon me. That's how he speaks about God's care for him in his life. Have you ever been comforted by someone just touching you? Perhaps a, a time of grief or fear or uncertainty. Just a hand on your back is a comfort. I, I, was, uh, I remember my own life. Uh, I became a Christian towards the end of my time in college and um, I uh, needed to share with my home church, and in so doing, tell them, you know, I actually haven't been a Christian all this time. I was kind of casually showing up, and uh, it was an occasion where I, I shared a testimony with my con little congregation, a small country church, and it was very emotional for me. I started to cry, and uh, as I was doing that, one of the, the men in the church who was nearby just came up and put his hand on my back. I remember so vividly the, just the, the comforting gesture, you're not alone. That's how Nehemiah relates to God. More importantly, it's how God relates to him. The reason that prayer works in this situation is God is powerful and God is willing and able and close. God's accessible. 
These two things together means that, that Nehemiah can look to him and trust him in any situation, even this, this quick prayer. I, I prayed to God. We must picture he's just praying silently, maybe even his eyes open. Do you do that sometimes? Oh, God, please be here now and help me. The second thing we see, however, is that this life of prayer, a life of faith, our discipleship with God is something that we grow in. We're not there instantly. There's two ways we see it in the passage that I, that I think are really significant. And the first, again, relates to prayer. I just want to think about this connection between the sustained pattern of prayer in Nehemiah's life in this sort of spontaneous outcrying of intimacy in a moment of crisis. Sometimes we divide those things. Some people will say, you know, I don't want to have a, a committed prayer life. It just feels so rote. I'd rather be spontaneous and relational with God. Well, relationships generally don't work that way. We have spontaneous intimacy with people when we cultivate regular connection and understanding. In fact, nearly everything we do in our life, we find that if we're able to do it in a moment of crisis, it's because we've practiced in a regular way beforehand. If Nehemiah had to stop and think through everything in the prayer that he wrote in Nehemiah chapter 1, in that moment when the king asked him, what are you requesting? He, he wouldn't have been able to actually speak to the king. That wasn't the moment for Nehemiah to rehearse all his theology, to be grounded in understanding how to access God, or, or even to develop the reflex of movement. I think what we learn here is that behind this wonderfully intimate picture of Nehemiah praying in his moment of need is also Nehemiah praying regularly morning and evening with fasting and grief over a long period of time. The rule is this, you will do in your crisis what you learn beforehand. You can't develop your faith in a crisis. It will grow, it can deepen, it can, be, it can move you to new levels of understanding God, but it's what we learn and do in our practice that will shape us. So Nehemiah prays in the moment because he's prayed regularly over a long period of time. There's a second part in the passage, though, that reminds us that faith is something we grow in. Even that wonderful expression of the good hand of God was upon me occurs after Nehemiah has spoken and after he's seen God answer. Why do I say this is important? Well, again, faith is something we grow in. Nehemiah didn't see all of that reality beforehand. When we come to our own places in our life where it's difficult to speak or to act, where faith is required to do something or to say something, it's always the case that we don't know how it's going to work out. If we did, faith would not be required. We would live by sight. But the Bible says you live by faith, not by sight. As if God has intentionally set it up where he's bringing us time and again to a place where we enter in, whether speech or action, without knowing what's going to happen. That's a, that's a frightening situation, isn't it? It's the, it's the heart, in many ways, the heart of the Christian walk. You come to the place where you recognize, oh, I need to say something now, or I need to do something now, and I don't know how it's going to go. I feel vulnerable, and there's a risk. 
And God says to us, yes. Would you trust me? When we debate with God in our mind, we say, well, yes, but I want you to show me first. Would you show me how it's going to go? This picture of seeing the good hand of my God upon me comes after he's spoken. Now, Nehemiah has walked with God before. He's met with God in prayer. He has trusted him in hard situations, no doubt. He has learned faith. He certainly drew on all of that when he prays to God and speaks to the king. But that process, the process of trusting and acting and stepping out, is itself something that deepens our spirituality and causes us to grow. I imagine we could err on two sides of this, right? There could be a people who struggle to pray, to trust God or to depend, and we spend all of our life running around, jumping ahead, doing what we think is best. And Nehemiah urges us to slow down, to commit to prayer, to be thoughtful in our words. But I would guess a, a large number of us struggle on the opposite side. When we come against the places in life that are hard, that require faith, that we're offer risk and vulnerability, we find ourselves pulling back. Maybe we can even cloak that in pious language. When we are called to act or to speak, it's a moment of trusting God. And what we see in the passage is those are the moments that let us see God at work. How many of you can testify or speak to moments in your life and times and periods where you look back on it and say, I wouldn't have seen God at work if I hadn't trusted him to try this thing. It was a little frightening. Leveraged me outward. Put me in a place where I wasn't in control. And afterwards we look at it and we see, oh, now I can see the good hand of the Lord was upon me. How do we connect with this? I've been trying to make connections throughout. Nehemiah uh, lives in a different period from us. He lives before Christ, before the cross. Sometimes we're uncertain how to read these parts of Old Testament history. How is the Old Testament relating to the new? Well, in our theological tradition, we note, rightly I believe, that what's happening in the Old Testament is fundamentally similar to what we experience as Christians. The connection between old and new, between Nehemiah and the church, is a connection of similarity. But the similarity is one where we have a greater experience of everything Nehemiah knew about his God. Nehemiah lived by faith, as do we. Nehemiah lived in a covenant of grace, as do we. He lived with a God who was all-powerful and yet who drew near to his people, as do we. The difference between Nehemiah and us is we have an even greater picture of God's commitment to his people. When we read the New Testament or think particularly the book of Hebrews, we see the emphasis made on the wonderful access that Jesus gives in prayer. Nehemiah had real access. He was really praying to God. But we pray in the name of Jesus. We have access to God and the promise of forgiven sins. Nehemiah did also. The temple was operating. The sacrifices were made. But the book of Hebrews reminds us that the sacrifices in the temple were really prefiguring the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. 
Nehemiah had confidence his sins could be forgiven, but we have much more. The sacrifices in the temple were repeated daily and yearly, coming again, pictures of the Lamb of God who was to come to take away the sins of the world. But the book of Hebrews reminds us that the reason they kept doing them is in itself testifying to the fact that one sacrifice didn't do it all. An animal killed for Nehemiah was a picture of forgiveness and it prefigured Jesus. It had real effectiveness because of him, but it was done again and again. The argument of Hebrews, as is the argument of the New Testament, is how much more? How much more confidence do we have to walk into the throne room of heaven asking for help in our time of need? Not only do we have greater confidence, but Jesus, our high priest, is praying for us. We read both our call to uh, confession and our assurance of pardon drew these themes out. Hebrews chapter 4 says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Nehemiah had a high priest. The, the temple was operating as he's speaking to the king. There was one going into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice for him. But Nehemiah didn't know his high priest. He was separated by uh, 150... I said it last week. He was separated by a large distance, <laughs> about 900 miles. He had no reason to believe his high priest knew him. And as Nehemiah stands before the king in fear, speaking out the words that are going to decide the fate of his nation, the high priest is not there to put his hand on his back to comfort him and remind him of God's good presence book of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who knows you. A high priest who's able to sympathize with your weakness, our fears. Jesus doesn't blast in, hammering us when we're afraid, but he comes alongside us. Though he's raised now and dwelling in heaven, he's poured out his Holy Spirit, and by the power of the Spirit, he says, you will never be alone. I will never forsake you. Christ is with us. And so in our moments of fear, and we stand before the powers in our life, the ones that actually could hurt us, uh, recognizing we need to speak or act or do something, the New Testament invites us to say, your high priest is near. Not physically, but spiritually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as if Jesus himself or to put his hand on your back, the hand scarred by the nails of the cross, marked by his sacrifice, marked by the depth of his commitment to you, it's as if Jesus himself would, were to put his hand on your back, spiritually. He's promised to be with you. And so we can have confidence to speak confidence to act, confidence to step in, 
with the hope and the anticipation that having trusted him, we will look over our shoulder to see that he was with us more than we ever knew or imagined. We see sometimes more clearly in the rearview mirror God's gracious power for us. And so, friends, would you join me in praying to our God that when the time is right, we will speak to the king, the powers around us, and we will trust him as we move forward. Let's pray together.